Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alvin Tejo. I'm Sam Andrew. And I'm Alexi White. Today, we will be talking about climate change and what the federal government's strengthened climate change plan will mean for Ontario. We'll be talking about the Financial Accountability Office report on the $12 billion in COVID funding left in reserve and contingency. Uh, It caused a little bit of a stir uh, and a perception that the Ford government is sitting on money that they should be giving out to people. We'll be talking about the early stages of the vaccine rollout, as I believe today, the day that we're recording, a day before you're listening, marks the first day the vaccines will be in Canada, which is very exciting. Uh, And we'll be checking in on paid COVID testing in Ontario. Uh, which is something that is also exciting, but for very different reasons. Quick bit of housekeeping before we dive in. Next week's episode will be our last of 2020. We'll be doing our usual year-end wrap-up. Uh, so, and if you have any questions you want us to answer, send them over Twitter or to OntarioLabMail at gmail.com. We will also have an important pod announcement, so make sure to tune in next week. Um, you know, it's a, make a, Ontario Loud is always an important part of the holiday season for everyone. Uh, I know. So make sure to tune into the pod. Have the uh, family listening around the fireplace for absolutely. Ontario Loud during the holidays. Also, happy birthday to Chris Martin. We are we are recording on my birthday. Um, and there's Should nothing. Are you one? Are I mean, you two? I, 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 my birthday, if I can ask for anything for my birthday, that we, we not do that. <laughs> Fine. But what I do... Uh, all I could ever want is to talk about these four exciting topics with the three of you. Um, it is a it is a true joy, always. Uh, so let's just dive right in. Last week, the federal government rolled out a strengthened plan to combat climate change with new measures to help Canada exceed its 2030 Paris Agreement targets, something that we were previously not on track to do. So a good thing. The plan includes an increase to the carbon tax, which was described by Premier Ford not as a good thing, but rather as the worst thing you could ever see, um, as he touted himself as a strong believer in protecting the environment. Um, So Alvin, (laughs) I want to start with you. Uh, And can you just tell us a little bit about the federal plan, what it's going to mean for Ontario? And, you know, to Premier Ford's concern, what is the scale of economic devastation that we're talking about here? To Premier Ford, give me a break. I mean, get off your high horse and remember the fact that you are trying to sell the damn green belt to developers and you have no interest in anything that actually protects the environment. So it's just a lord of horseshit coming out of uh, the Ford government here about their opposition to this, spending millions of dollars fighting the carbon tax and still not even understanding what the hell they're talking about. The federal government clearly wants to link the pandemic recovery with the environment. And I think they were thinking of doing this a few months ago before the throne speech, but uh, got a little gun shy. But they're sort of ready to move on it now. And they really are trying to tie these two things together. So it's titled A Healthy Environment and a Healthy Economy. And they say it's a plan that achieves both our environmental goals and our economic hopes, clean air, clean water and long term secure jobs. The central part of the plan is essentially to dramatically reduce Canada's greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, and it's built around a new carbon tax price to essentially reach $170 per ton. So just for context, it's currently $30 a ton. It was $20 a ton at the beginning of this year. That's equal to about $0.07 at the pump. They're saying that it's going to go up roughly $0.37 per liter. This only applies to provinces that don't already have any sort of carbon pricing. And so this tax is one that is now imposed on provinces that don't have that. 
so much of the carbon tax is actually returned to individuals in the form of the rebate. So the more you lower your own footprint, the more you can actually get back re- uh, more revenues relative to what you were spending in terms of increased costs. The interesting thing to me politically is that the carbon tax was originally a conservative idea and a way to change behavior through the tax system to create better habits and have people make better green and better and greener choices. So I guess my first question is, why do we think the conservatives federally and premiers now provincially are so against this and making this out to be, you know, self-inflicted economic suicide that they keep saying it is? It's exactly the same as it's always been. I mean, why would we expect anything different? It's it's this is the same dance we do every single time, except this time it feels like the rest of Canada has started to move on and their continued opposition is what got the federal one of the things that got the federal conservatives to lose the last election. So I'm hopeful that that uh, they come around eventually. But in the meantime, um, I don't know, I feel like people are just used to this at this point. They're going to continue to push the, the need to extract oil and the the doomsday scenarios for the economy and everyone else is going to move on with uh, climate change being something we actually have to tackle. Do you think there's any concern around this being part of the pandemic response and then the conservative argument around this is not the time to fight climate change while we're getting through uh, you know an economic crisis? Yeah, like I'm somewhat less bullish than than Alexi. I think to your point, this is standard fair and they vilified especially the carbon tax so much with their base that they couldn't possibly do anything but the reaction uh that they did but i think um and i agree that the left and the like you know core of of um the ndp and the and the liberals base in ontario is moving on but i think um there's a group you know uh in the 905 especially that is convinced we need to do something about climate change, but I don't think they've wrestled with the specifics. Like I think, a, you know, a different conservative uh, party could easily convince them that the carbon tax is not the way forward and XYZ is, is what's needed. Do you know what I mean? Um, even though the specifics would not add up to the emission reductions needed. Um, so I will admit, I don't know that the federal government laid enough track for this move. Like, I think, like, it came as a huge shock to me, which is, like, you know, generally a sign that definitely come as a big surprise to people who were paying much less attention than uh, the folks on this podcast to politics. So I think they obviously have polling, like the federal level, obviously it's polling that this is a winner for them or else um, I don't think they would be doing this, to your point, Alvin, in the middle of a pandemic. But um uh, I, I think I think the politics of it are such that the winner is not yet determined. I, I agree. And the one thing that worries me about this is where the Overton window is on this file versus where what the actual policy does. Because one thing, and we've talked about this before, is that Canada was not on track previously to meet its climate change targets. This puts us on track, which, uh, as I said in the intro, is a good thing. But if the fight is around whether or not we're going to meet our targets, like I just don't like that as a place for the, like the fight to happen. Like we should be scaling up our ambition around this file. I think the science tells us that like we actually might have be on a bit more of an exponential curve with climate change and its impacts, as opposed to, you know, what some of the thinking was that went into the original targets. And so, um, I do. I, I agree with you, Sam. I think we're on a little bit of a precarious ground, but it is good that they're doing this. And I, I'm glad that they think that the 
strategy, the political strategy lines up with the policy. And it's a good plan. Like it's, it's a good plan. It's, it's what we should be doing. I'm I'm frustrated for those previous reasons. I think too, though, that yes, it's a good plan. It's obviously the most economically efficient plan to rely on carbon tax. But I, again, I don't know that the public is a hundred percent there. Like I think if you had brought along, you know, like banning gas powered cars, for example, by, you know, new gas powered cars by some dates, like an electric vehicle mandate or like something where people can attach themselves to it and say like, ah, I understand how that will definitely reduce emissions and is like a good thing for the country. Whereas the carbon tax is so uh, theoretical, like I don't, I just don't think people yet, like there's abacus polling I've seen that 40% of people have heard of it, but don't understand it, the carbon tax. And so like, I just think it's a hard thing for people to glom onto. Um, they obviously think differently that like that they can sell this message, but I, like I think there's a lot of work to do to bring the province and the country along on that. Yeah, it's not tied to any pandemic-related rebuilding kind of narrative in the way that I think it could have been, and that that's sort of the major pushback that I saw from the more thoughtful right-wing pundits on this is that it still smacks too much from their perspective uh, of sort of liberal elitism and sort of we need to do this because it's the right thing to do. And if you don't agree with that, then you're just backwards and and being unethical. And um, I mean, while I agree that those are technically true, um, that's not the message you want to be sending to people. If you can, if you can have a greater uh, active government approach to this, where it's not just you know we're going to raise taxes and that's going to solve this problem, but it's more let's rebuild Canada in a in a, toward a vision for for uh, a healthy green economy, put a bunch of people back to work, tie this into infrastructure investments, tie this into uh, things people see in their communities. So there are signs that go up in everyone's community saying like Canada's climate action plan or something like that. Like there's, <laughs> there's uh, you know, some obvious sort of communications tools that one could use to, um, to sell this probably in a different way. Alexi, you mentioned uh, pandemic recovery. I'm going to, I'm going to Try and use that as a as a expert level segue into <laughs> the financial accountability office report that came out last week. Financial accountability office came out last week with its uh, Q two expenditure monitor, uh, which is of course a document that is always hotly followed by most of Ontario. Uh, but this one actually made headline uh, due to its finding that the province's contingency fund, health fund, and support for people and jobs fund had a combined balance of about twelve billion dollars, uh, and that any remaining contingency funds by the end of the year would be used to or could be used to reduce the overall deficit. All three of these funds are basically contingency funds. They're measures that have been put in place to ensure that the province has money to spend uh, to deal with the pandemic. And it has allowed a lot of folks to criticize the province for sitting on money that it could have been spending. The Liberals had a particularly hilariously named, uh, hilariously titled news release entitled Premier Scrooge hoards billions while Ontarians suffer. Um, but there might be more going on here. Alexi, we talked about the province's contingency fund in our last fiscal update. What's going on and is the criticism fair? Yeah, let's quickly recap what's going on. So basically, the FAO said during the first two quarters of the fiscal year, so up until September 30th, the province increased its spending plan by $14.6 billion. Most of that went into the contingency funds, actually 95% of it into the contingency funds you mentioned. And so the headline was the combined remaining balance in these funds was still $20 billion as of the 30th of September. The government's response, of course, was that these figures are accurate but out of date. The Treasury Board president said 80% of the money was subsequently allocated through November's budget and they expect to spend the rest by the end of the year. And I remember you saying that in our last 
Ontario Loud budget coverage back in November when we talked about how this budget update basically showed no change in the bottom line since the last fiscal update, uh, even though the government announced billions of new spending. And that was because nearly all of the new spending was coming from unallocated contingency funds. Right, right. So we we also noted there's a lot of contingency funds remaining in the out year. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, spending is still going to be up uh, $14 billion in this sort of other spending category next year, according to the projections in the budget. So not all of that has been allocated. We'll have to watch to see what happens to those funds over the next two years. The government thinks it will spend the money by the end of the year. That's how the government is blunting the liberal and NDP criticism that it's sitting on a big cash pile will people suffer essentially um but are i'm, I'm kind of curious like are the critics right here it does seem strange that we are going towards a vaccine we are in potentially the twilight months of the pandemic fingers crossed but the government has so much money it is sitting on right now yeah well certainly the language was hyperbolic from that press release that you mentioned uh, all of this money is being bor- borrowed and of course the contingency is just a notional number on paper right it's it's just it's just um put into the fiscal plan as a, a placeholder so the government certainly wasn't actually hoarding anything real um should they have spent the money sooner i think we've covered this before yes absolutely right i mean compared to the first two quarters of last year they only spent 5.3 billion more this year even though they'd put aside 14 billion so you know obviously it's very accurate to say they waited an awfully long time to ramp up their spending. And we know from media reports that they resisted a bunch of spending in the summer when they could have been increasing testing capacity and hiring more contact tracers and taking other steps that would have helped us prepare better for the second wave. Uh, And of course, there's also investments they could have made to help people get through the first half of this year. Uh, We've seen other provinces do things like rent subsidies and social assistance top-ups and uh, other investments, maybe in education, that would have helped us uh, to weather this storm. So what do you guys think? Should the government have spent the money faster? What would you have spent it on? I mean, I, I don't know why this government didn't spend it on small business supports, right? I mean, if they're going to close and force these uh, areas and regions that have high COVID numbers, why didn't they also have a program to support small business owners? And it would have been right up the alley, it would have been part of their narrative of supporting small business and saying, we need to do the following things, but you know, we're going to give you some more rent supports, we'll give you some wage subsidy, whatever it is to keep the lights on and not have uh, all these small businesses go out of business. From a conservative perspective, a tactical error in them not uh, saying that they're going to continue fighting for the little guy. I totally get why the opposition is jumping on this. This is the premier's office sitting on $12 billion that it could have spent when people are mad is going to generate anger and resentment. However, it is one of those things that is also not really true in the sense of like the way the liberals are and the NDP are, are are pitching it like this is is money that is allocated it will theoretically be spent and it seems to have like a factual response and just as like a little bit of political strategy do you think that like it is it is an effective tool for folks to be targeting the 12 billion in this report as opposed to making an argument that the government you know perhaps should have spent more in education sooner or should have spent more in small business sooner like you know they could have topped up there's been a ton of spending, but a lot of it's come from the feds and, you know, the province really could have topped a lot of it up. So it's an effective frame. I get the politics of it totally because um, I think it's settling into the public consciousness how much of the heavy lifting the federal government has done. And therefore, it colors the way people are going to look at the deficits that have been racked up federally versus provincially. So um, uh, so I get it totally. In terms of what they could have spent it on, I think it's outrageous that there's still not paid sick leave in this province. So like that would have been an obvious one to roll out like a guaranteed 
whatever week or two weeks of, of paid sick leave for COVID. The fact that they nickel and dimed school boards until like the day before school started uh, is another place where uh, it could have been fixed much faster. I think social assistance and ODSP is another one. And so, uh, you know, Alvin's right about small business, but like, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm charitable about this. I think the province has uh, been ridiculously slow in so many different ways, testing, uh, you know, uh, contact tracing, they they basically frittered away the summer uh, doing nothing. Uh, and then when the second wave hit, they then started opening up the purse strings, but it was too late. And, and, and that wasn't a narrative in the summer, right? Like no one in the summer was saying, oh, we're spending too much money on this. Like they had carte blanche to basically do what they needed to do, spend the money and do the right thing, right? I mean, you can remember that Stephen Harper had one of the largest deficits in Canadian history trying to recover from the 2008 global recession, right? So they had the political leeway to spend as much money as they wanted to spend this money, especially to uh, help recover the economy, but also to make sure that the healthcare system was up to snuff. And no one would have criticized them, especially not liberals and new Democrats of spending too much money to do that, right? So like, why not do the right thing and spend the appropriate amount of money to make sure that people are safe and that the economy yeah, is running Yeah, that's, the, that's kind of the million dollar question. And I sort of expect that the answer maybe is that these aren't the kinds of things that, you know, like nothing in that list of things that we talked about are things that, you know, are typical, I think, conservative government instincts to invest. And one narrative that's landing in my head is, you know, this is a government that perhaps did the right things or some of the right things at uh, but governments around the world have been rewarded for moving quickly and moving boldly and moving quickly on pandemic responses. And we, you know, are the the sort of guiding attitudes were to wait and see and to sort of see if we could get by an education without investing or see if we can do this. And maybe this is now the to my I guess my earlier question, an appropriate political price to pay. It, it's interesting to me that the, the truth is a little bit more nuanced than the attacks, but maybe the attacks need to be as simple as they are for people to understand. From maybe bad pandemic news to better pandemic news, we this is the first day people are receiving uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in Ontario. According to the province, 2,500 healthcare workers will be receiving vaccines as part of a pilot project in Toronto and Ottawa. Uh, so this is obviously super exciting. Uh, and last week, we got to see details of the province's, wait for it, three-phase plan for rolling out the vaccines. Sam, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the plan, how we think it's going to play out? Are we are, are we excited for three phases? Are there colors? Are we going to have sub-stages? I'm, <laughs> I'm excited for another one. one of I am pleased to report there are colors. Uh, the first phase is red, the second phase is orange, and then the third phase is blue. So exciting times. Um, uh, in fact, the plan, which was uh, given much fanfare in a news release, is only uh, five pages, one of them with a cover page. Um, and so it's thin, but uh, they did release um, some key details. So as as you mentioned, the first phase is going to be focused on, on healthcare workers. Um, with, with a focus on uh, those in uh, congregate settings like long-term care um, uh, and uh, ICUs in hospitals. Um, and the, as you mentioned, that's the phase that's uh, starting today. And uh, they're then going to expand that to try to get to all healthcare workers, uh, people who live in long-term care homes, um, patients with chronic conditions, 
and then uh, First Nations communities. Um, and they also mentioned urban indigenous populations, including Métis and Inuit adults, which they don't really um, explain uh, that focus. Um, but then after that, the third phase is all eligible Ontarians. And this is where I think folks were expecting more details about like this, you know, phase phase by age or, or something. Um, and there wasn't that. It would just said it would be a, a mass uh, immunization campaign in the, in the third phase. Um, and so it's interesting, Ontario's approach, I looked at a bunch of the different provinces. Ontario's approach is a bit different. Most are including seniors above a certain age, either 75 or 80. Um, in, in one of the first phases, which Ontario is not. Ontario is focusing instead on uh, as people with chronic conditions and people who live in, in long-term care homes. So uh, that is uh, the phases. Uh, this is all being overseen by uh, General Rick Hillier, who is retired, both the federal government and the Ontario government are relying on uh, these military men to be the face of the vaccination rollout. Um, I think probably in part inspired by uh, President Trump doing the same. Um, so it's exciting. It's, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. The feds think it can all get done uh, by September. Um, and so what do we make of this? What do we think? Is this a good plan? And uh, what are people's reactions to how the province is handling both the substance and the politics of the vaccine rollout? I mean, I find it funny or ironic that conservatives were yelling that we weren't going to have any vaccines. And then you have to have conservative premiers implementing the vaccine plans and sort of rolling out exactly what they're going to do with uh, each shipment that's coming out. I think the politics around this is sort of opportunistic, but I, I think in the interest of all Canadians, we need the provincial government to roll this out as effectively as possible and the feds to continue getting us as much supply as possible. I think there's going to be an announcement in the next day or two that talks about potentially donating uh, some of our excess vaccines to uh, other countries. So we'll see how that turns out. But, you know, I think everybody knows that uh, people, frontline workers are going to need it uh, sooner than everybody else. And I don't think it's a bad idea to target people who have chronic conditions who are probably more at risk than just the aged population. Yeah, no, I, I'm, uh, that is the the one piece of what you said that I'm kind of curious for their, for their thinking about. I mean, just when you think about who is the typical conservative voter, older, more affluent people, and them being sort of not sort of like in that first tranche of the plan, uh, like I think that that would have made a ton of sense for them. But I do think a more targeted approach that includes Indigenous people uh, is encouraging. And so, no, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of nothing but encouraged on this. I think it is one of those things on the politics that we are just going to see everyone line up behind the vaccine bus. And it's going to, you know, it seems like a, a little bit like the vaccine is going to start taking up more and more attention and less and less attention is going to be drawn to the pandemic response to date, which is really showing some signs of wear and tear, um, which is something that I, I think opposition parties would do well not to let people forget about. But no, but I mean, you know, I'm not I'm also not a cold hearted person who is not personally excited by this. And, you know, if, <laughs> if Doug Ford gets some political credit for getting a vaccine and people that need vaccines, like, so be it. Can I can I point out several like the funniest thing that happened on Twitter, I think, last week was how the Beaverton wrote an article that showed Aaron O'Toole blaming Justin Trudeau for the anti-vaxxers within his own party. And then literally like two days later, he did the exact same thing in the National Post. Like it's fucking insane. It's insane. There's so many anti-vaxxers out there and they're being led by conservative MPs. 
like, oh yeah, and on the anti-vaxxer uh, train, I do think it will be interesting to watch. So the uh, Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, was out uh, this week or made a comment question period that there may they may be open to restrictions uh, on some like public places, like whether it be public transit or, or whatnot. Um, if you haven't uh, taken the vaccine at a certain point, like if they were open to discussing restrictions, and I saw a bunch of people in Delhi pounce on that because there's you know complicated charter uh, you know um, uh, questions about about the validity of, of such an approach, which I mean, the whole world I think will be consumed by that uh, once once we get into the fall. Um, but I do think that that will be an interesting thing to watch because I think, you know, I, I am excited to take the vaccine. I want to take the vaccine, but there are like rational non-anti-vaxxer people in my life who have like been like, well, like how safe is this vaccine? Like it's only been, you know, a few months. Like I think, I think, you know, I don't want this part to be like an anti-vaxxer moment here, but I just think like it <laughs> will be, it will be interesting to watch the politics of that for the next few months. That's all I want. Another fun story out of this was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's half-brother, his mom, Margaret, remarried and had more children, and one of them is a huge anti-vaxxer, and the National Post also gave him a platform to talk about how terrible vaccines are. Amazing. Yeah. the, the It'll be too... Yeah, I agree. It'll be uh, interesting to see how the anti-vaxxer movement plays out. I think in general, that's true of this whole thing. It's too early to judge the rollout strategy. Uh, a lot of the success or failure of it will be looking back. Uh, and I'm sure the Auditor General will gift us with many wonderful reports on that, uh, <laughs> in the months and years to come. Um, and I think it's also worth remembering that like, it, this is a rollout that's going to take a long time, not just in Canada, but around the world. And it's also worth uh, following some of the, the media internationally around how other countries are struggling. Uh, Brazil has made uh, probably a huge underinvestment in the number of vaccines they're going to need. Um, and then you have these debates going on at the World Trade Organization about whether patent rights over the vaccines should be waived, uh, given that huge amounts of the funding for this these vaccines were paid for by governments. Uh, and yet we haven't actually weighed that or waived those rights. And Canada is standing with a lot of the developed nations saying it's unnecessary to waive patent rights over these uh, things. And that um, the voluntary systems that are already in place are good enough. So basically, like, don't worry, poor countries, trust us, like, we'll make sure everything's okay, uh, which um, is kind of sketchy. So interesting to watch all of these things over the next uh, months and years. Lastly, one more COVID topic before we go, I wanted to do a quick check on testing. Since it's been a, uh, a little while since we checked into the current state of testing. Last time we talked, it seemed the province had shut down uh, testing for everyone and made the move to a more prioritized model for symptomatic people and those who had, uh, with confirmed exposures, also as well as specific populations. Um, and to quell anxieties about this, uh, Premier Ford announced partnerships with pharmacies for asymptomatic people, uh, suggesting that pharmacies could deliver this service uh, and the public system could work on, um, you know, where we're actually seeing signs of COVID. Uh, the plan has rolled out, but it is not the case that you can get a test at a pharmacy if you just roll in. You need to be a worker at a long-term care home, a shelter, a retirement center, be Indigenous, or an international student. And as of Monday last week, you used to be able to get a test as an international uh, if you were just seeking to travel internationally. But this has moved from an OHIP subsidized model as of Monday last week to a paid model. So uh, if you go to a shopper's drug mart right now and say that you're going to be traveling internationally, you can pay $200 for a COVID test. When viewed in a vacuum, it might make sense that the province might want 
not want to subsidize asymptomatic testing for those who just want to travel and presumably take more risks. But it does raise the interesting question of what the current state of paid private testing in Ontario is, because there's actually a lot more of it than we think. Wait, so I can go and pay for a COVID test, Chris? (laughs) You can't. Interestingly, it seems like more people want to get into the business. The Toronto Star had a really interesting article this weekend where they interviewed a few different clinics in Niagara Falls uh, and Toronto that are administering private tests for travelers for a fee. And it's all been being done in different ways. Uh, and these private tests are actually being promoted by the airline industry now, which is necessary for getting planes off the ground. Um, so just as an example, one company is planning to open eight locations in Ontario in January to test asymptomatic travelers. Uh, And with folks looking to pay to take these tests, it seems like there might be a growing market here. Yeah, I mean, who's actually who's actually doing the tests? Like Shoppers Drug Mart isn't isn't like actually doing the tests, so isn't that going to create problems with the the testing um, that is already happening at, at labs all across the province? Like, how do we have the capacity for this? There is uh, almost no coordination in the system whatsoever right now. So we talked previously on the pod about how testing capacity was dramatically increased to uh, over the early months of this year, January, February, to meet the needs of the pandemic, and lots of private labs were essentially being requisitioned into the public health system for COVID testing. Um, Some of these same labs are also analyzing now these paid private tests, which creates concerns that OHIP maybe or the public may be in some way subsidizing these costs of private testing and creating competition in the system for like limited resources. Um, The ministry has said to its credit uh, that private testing, its policy directive is that private testing providers will not receive public resources, but with no clear standards of practice or really oversight or anything, it seems likely that there is some subsidy happening at some level. Um, One paid testing uh, site opening locations across Ontario sends its tests to the U.S. for analysis. Uh, And when they ask for guidance as to how to submit results back to the province, they never heard back, meaning that, you know, there might be some private clinics running tests that might never be reported. If it's being analyzed essentially by clinics that are being supported by the public. So that is just kind of a wild outcome. Uh, And then just at a higher level, there is a real problem with creating, allowing an industry that will eventually be competitively procuring tests with the province. The ministry does not allow private providers to buy from the public supply, which is a good thing. But these private suppliers are still seeking to buy limited quantities of reagent and competing with the province. So if we're dealing with what we've heard might be a global shortage of the testing reagent, some in the public system have ex- essentially ex- expressed concerns about this. Yeah, I mean, I get that. And obviously, I'd prefer there not to be any sort of pri- public funding for any sort of private healthcare that's going on here. I think the government isn't necessarily wrong to have gone to the private sector to increase capacity. I think that was obviously a necessity. Um, and these private companies are going to try to find other avenues to make more money moving forward. I also just don't understand who is spending the money to actually get these private tests. And I mean, maybe they're getting their companies to pay for it. But I've had five tests. My kids have had lots of tests. My wife has had multiple tests. And it's never been a difficult thing to go get a test through the actual publicly funded system, right? I mean, you have some sort of exposure, you have some kind of symptom. I'm not saying you lie about it, but it's not difficult to do it legitimately and go through the actual system. So, you know, I don't understand why people are wasting their money. I think though on that, I must say like even the website and the narrative is like encourages you not to get a test, right? Like compared to how the summer was when it was like, 
everybody, like whenever you want, take a test, asymptomatic, whatever, come on by. It's now like a laundry list of conditions that you have to go through to get like to a test. And as you said, easy to navigate, but like, you know, there's lots of people who are going to be intimidated by that. There are also jurisdictions in Canada and around the world that are still doing asymptomatic testing. I think it goes back to uh, how the province has chosen to spend its money. And they're like, we're in a once in a fucking generation uh, pandemic. Why not just let anybody get a test that wants it? And I know that there's like reasons right now because of capacity of the reagent and whatever, and the like laboratory uh, capacity that that makes a bad policy, but that should have been fixed six months ago. With, with some real investment, maybe some of that $12 billion lying around. Yeah. And, and I, I think it comes back to like, you know, as we talk, I think about the vaccine and it being close, like this is not really, like this is not the biggest story in Ontario right now, nor really should it be because it's a fairly limited population of people who are traveling internationally for work and need that screening test while they're asymptomatic. And that's really who's paying. It's not a lot of people by most reports. However, if this we were in the pandemic for like 10 months longer, what we basically designed accidentally is a system that is competing with the public system um, that doesn't interface particularly well uh, with no clear guidelines or oversight um, that the Ministry of Health has a hostile uh, relationship with for lots of good reasons. Um, but that is, you know, is, is growing. Like we could see demand increase arising over time. And you know, for those that are using the system, one of the real takeaways for me is that you, if you go and get one of these private paid tests, it might not be being tested in a Canadian lab. It might be being sent to the US. It might not interface with the province's reporting system. There are very few rules or oversight. And so I think it's just a really interesting example of poor planning and how messed up things might be if we, you know, relied on something here. Like it's clearly something that was stitched together. Doug Ford said at one point that testing should be a free market, which presumably created some room for this kind of thing. But the health ministry is trying to sort of tamp down on it and put it in a box. But it's clear that like policy attention to how a properly regulated, privately delivered testing sent a system should be designed and interface has not really been thought through. And we're kind of in a mess right now. And it's, you know, limited in scope, limited in scale. We're not going to be in the pandemic, hopefully for that much longer. So maybe not that much of a problem, but, you know, really makes me worried about where we could be if, you know, the global community didn't come together and develop this vaccine so quickly. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you everyone for joining us. Next week is our year-end wrap-up episode with a very special podcast announcement you don't want to miss. So send us your mailbag questions on Twitter at Ontario Loud, email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com or Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast. Ontario Loud is Chris Martin, Alexi White, Grima Talwar Kapoor, Sam Andry, and myself, Alvin Tejo. Thanks to our researcher, Haman Mundi, and of course, our supporters on Patreon. See you next time. Stay safe.